Second Samuel chapter 22. And then David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord had delivered him from the hand of all of his enemies and from the hand of Saul. David probably writes this psalm not at the end of his life, though it's kind of uh, included in this section of Second Samuel that has to do with the end of uh, David's life. David will go to be with the Lord in, in uh, uh, First Kings in the next, perhaps next week as we get to it, and uh, probably wrote this psalm uh, relatively early in his uh, life and ministry, certainly very early as a king. Probably wrote it following that 10 year period of uh, fleeing Saul in preparation for becoming king out in the wilderness and the caves of Adullam and and off there in the Judean wilderness. And uh, now he finally becomes the king first over Hebron and a couple of tribes of Israel and then ultimately becomes the king over all of Israel. And uh, as he looks back. He wants to give praise to the Lord for the fact that he has survived, that God's promise to him that he would become the next king of Israel, which looked physically and literally impossible for ten years, that it came to pass. And he wanted to give the Lord praise for that. David did not, and surely the Holy Spirit did not. But David, as he wrote, inspired by the Holy Spirit, did not want, and I think it's one of the reasons that this is included by the Spirit late in David's life in terms of the chronology. David didn't want anyone to read his life and come to the end of it and come to the conclusion that what David was was a kind of some superior man with superior talent and superior bravery and superior intelligence and all of these kind of things. He wanted every person to know that he became king first of all and then became the king that he was. And one of the greatest men in human history, not because of what he was in the natural, but what he was because God had graciously made him into that. He deflects all praise and worship for his life toward the Lord. He said in verse 2, and then he said, as he writes this psalm, The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield and the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my Savior, you save me from Violence. I will call upon the Lord who is worthy to be praised, and so I shall be saved from my enemies. He describes all of the ways that he knew the Lord. He knew him as his fortress, or he knew him first there is my rock. A rock is the most solid foundation you can build something on in life. And God was a rock to David. He said, you are my deliverer. You delivered me out of so many situations where my life was in jeopardy. You are, you are the God of my strength. When his strength was over, there was no more to give. God became his strength. He said, you're my shield. Now, shield was a pretty handy thing to have in battle. Now, one of the things about when he says, God is my shield, what does that mean? It means he's in battle. 
means that people are attacking him. Talks about him being the horn of my salvation, my stronghold, my refuge, the place of safety that he could flee to, my savior, the one who saved his life over and over again. Now, David, it's interesting when he opens this psalm, he uses the word my nine times. So we read it this way. A couple of verses. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, the God of my strength in whom I will trust, my shield, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold and my refuge, my savior who will save me from violence. There's a certain quality to that. How about if we read it this way? The Lord is somebody else's rock. And somebody else's fortress, and I've heard Joe Bacicalupi's deliverer, whom he trusts in. He's Alex's shield and the horn of Susan's salvation, and I hear he's Joe's stronghold and Bob's refuge. And he's Jim's savior who saves him from all violence. It loses a little bit of the edge. David wanted everybody to know. That in the worst, as we're going to see in a moment, that the world could throw at him. This is what he discovered God to be personally. He wasn't living off of anybody else's testimony or what anybody else knew to be true about God. God took him into circumstances in life in which he would be forced. You don't sign up for this. I want to learn all these things about God by correspondence course. I don't want to learn it firsthand. I don't want to need to be rescued. I don't want I don't want I just want to know that God is a shield. I don't want to actually be attacked and my life put in jeopardy to learn that he'll defend me in that condition. And one of the most important things for us to realize as Christians is that as hard as the circumstances can be in our lives and that God allows them to be at times, there is that recognition that we have that no matter what else is happening, how else God is working it together for good, one thing we do know is that those circumstances cause us to come to know God in a way we never would otherwise. I would be a very, well, I... I was going to say a very shallow person. I should say a more shallow person than I am if God did not force me to learn these things about him on some level, the circumstances of my life. And so David looks and he says, this what I tell you about God. This isn't the witness of others. This is how I came to know God when the world threw its absolute worst at me. And the same is true of us. So often we can look at the things that we go through or when we're in the middle of some terrible, difficult circumstance. And no doubt many of us in this room are in that kind of a place. While we're in the middle of it, we can think nothing could make this worth it. Nothing that God could do could make this worth what I'm going through right now. And then we get on the other side of it. And we discover more than money or gold or position or power or prominence or any of those things. That we end up with what ends up being the most valuable to us in life is that we learn things about him we would have never learned otherwise. 
And that we can speak with authority. We can write our own psalm and speak it with authority to other people. Not secondhand. That Barney or Aunt B or Opie learned. But that we know personally about the Lord. It's a very beautiful section of Scripture. If we want this kind of depth, it means we're going to have to go through trouble. It means God is going to have to put us in circumstances where we are consistently one nostril out of the water. We are always a little bit beyond our own resources so that he can step in in such a way that we recognize he did it and that he became all those things to us. It's kind of a straight betwixt two. It's a package deal. It's how we become Deep and intimate with the Lord. He describes some of the trials that he went through when the waves of death surrounded me. Circumstances where he said, I'll never get out of this alive. It's interesting. When that's just words on a page, he has very poetic. Oh, I love the Psalms. It's another thing when over and over and over again, David found himself in a circumstance where he said, I won't survive this. This is where I die. The Lord didn't let him die. The waves pounding of death surrounded me. The floods of ungodliness made me afraid. David had situations in his life where ungodly and wicked men came against him like a flood. One of the scariest things in the world is to be in a flood. You ever watch those shows on TV? I don't like water particularly. I like it better than Pastor Bob likes it. Bob doesn't like it. A lot. Amen, Bob? He really does. Don't go asking him why later on. But, so I'm, I'm not that real comfortable in water. Water's for ducks and fish and stuff like that. Some of you love water. God bless you. That's great. Somebody's got to build pools. But you see those shows on TV where, like, somebody says, yeah, I think I can get my truck across this. And they're caught in one of these things in Southern California where the water just comes so quick and they're flooded. And then they bring in six helicopters and it takes 18 people to get the guy plunked out, you know. And by the time he's being tracked up, you know, he's just a flood is a terrible. There's something worse than a flood of water. A flood of ungodliness. Where ungodly men and ungodly women. And you know they're ungodly. You know they're wicked and they're wrong. You know their agenda is ungodly. And they attack and they attack and they attack and they attack. And so they did with David. David became king. I'll tell you, nobody reaches a position that God puts them in. Position of prominence, except they pay a private price to hold that position. David had to endure the floods of ungodliness that were so great that it looked like ungodliness was going to prevail so much so that it made him afraid. The sorrows of Sheol surrounded me. Sheol is, is the place of death in the Hebrew mind, but also the, the stronghold of the enemy. He said the devil's attacks against me surrounded me. The snares of death confronted me. There were times in my life when everywhere I looked, it was another trap. To get out of this trap would be to step into another trap. Now, what do you do when you are in that kind of a circumstance in life? You're going to do something. We're all going to do something. But David did is he prayed. 
In my distress, I called upon the Lord and cried out to my God. And the idea of crying out is just say, say what you mean and mean what you say. No need for these or thou's or thy's or thine. Just get that prayer out to the God who hears our prayers. And the Lord heard my voice from his temple and my cry entered into his ears. Wonderful to realize that our prayers do that. I'm enjoying this couple of weeks. I enjoy every Sunday morning, but we talked the last couple of weeks about prayer. Jesus spoke to the disciples in that upper room discourse, and he told them that prayer would be as immediate and as effective a means of communication as ever talking to him face to face was. I think about what that can do to our prayer lives to realize that. The instant we pray, he hears our prayer. The instant we pray, it's having an effect upon our situation. My cry entered into the ears of God Almighty. And then he describes in very, very poetic language God's response to David's needs and to David's prayers. Then the earth shook and trembled. The foundations of heaven were quaked and were shaken because he was angry, talking about the unrighteous, the ungodly coming against David. So he's testifying now to a life of answered prayers. God's been, it wasn't me just praying, but my life is a testimony to the fact that God hears prayer and he answers. Smoke went up from his nostrils and devouring fire from his mouth. Coals were kindled by it. Again, he's using beautiful poetic language to say, whatever trial I was in the middle of, however deep the waters were, however great they were, God became greater still. God became more powerful. God became more dramatic. And so we talk about moving heaven and earth in order to accomplish uh, something. God literally can do it. God's bigger than all of our enemies. He's bigger than all of our trials, David said. And it's true. And he bowed the heavens also and came down with darkness under his feet. And he rode upon a cherub and flew. And he was seen upon the wings of the wind. He made Darkness canopies around him, dark waters and thick clouds of the skies. From the brightness before him, coals of fire were kindled. The Lord thundered from heaven and the Most High uttered his voice. He sent out, uh, sent out arrows and scattered them, lightning bolts, and he vanquished them. Then the channels of the sea were seen. The foundations of the world were uncovered at the rebuke of the Lord, at the blast of the breath of his nostrils. God did everything that he needed to do to keep his word and to keep his promises to me, David said. And it's the same thing is true of us. I'm so glad when I read the Bible and I read the promises and my life is kind of catching up to a promise or two. I know the Bible's going to have the final say in this circumstance, but it hasn't had the final say. I know what the final say is going to be because I've got the promise in God's Word. But it's not quite there yet. And, and to realize that my life, and, and I, I comfort myself with some regularity on this, and sometimes I'll even talk to myself. You know, it's okay to talk to yourself. David did in the Psalms. 
Uh, don't do it in the uh, aisles of a grocery store. I mean, not too loud anyway. But David said, why art thou cast down, O my soul? He, he talked to himself about things. Sometimes I'll just say, Lord, I am so thankful that my life is not going to prove you to be a liar. Would it be terrible if that was, if I had like that little banner around me in heaven? The one man who disproved a promise of God. Well, it will never happen. We don't have to worry about it. Why do I bring things up that you don't have to worry about? And he sent from above. He took me. And he drew me out of many waters. He delivered me from my strong enemy, from those who hated me. For they were too strong for me. They confronted me in the day of my calamity. But the Lord was my support. And he also brought me out into a broad place. That's a safe place. And he delivered me because he delighted in me. Verse 21. The Lord rewarded me according to my righteousness. According to the cleanness of my hands. He has recompensed me. For I have kept the ways of the Lord and have not wickedly departed from my God. For all his judgments were before me, and as for his statutes, I did not depart from them. I was also blameless before him, and I kept myself from my iniquity. Therefore, the Lord has recompensed me according to my righteousness, according to my cleanness in his eyes. Now, it is this statement by David in this psalm that makes us realize that uh, David... Uh, probably uh, wrote this um, before his fall with Bathsheba. The Psalms that he writes after his sin with Bathsheba and the ones that he writes beforehand, they both contain a tremendous truth. God wanted all of them to be written. But they are a little bit different. And here he testifies to the, his general obedience uh, toward the Lord and that it was his general obedience to God that allowed God to bless him as much as God wanted to bless David's life. And it's true. The Bible says that we have the capacity to grieve or quench the Holy Spirit in our life, to quench God or grieve him. The Bible says that if we live willfully disobedient to the Lord, we force him to move from a position of being able to express the fullness, full ways that he wants to bless our lives, and we force him to become a chastener or a discipliner in our lives. And David just acknowledged, and there's absolutely nothing wrong with it, where David came in and he is just acknowledging before the whole world that it meant something to him to be able to offer to God a obedient life so that God could express the fullness of his blessings upon his life. That's a wonderful thing to be able to say. David, when he writes later, following his failure with Bathsheba and his sin, the Psalms are an expression of thankfulness to God and his relationship with God because God is so, was so gracious and so merciful to him. The Psalms took a little bit of a change. They're both true. Both sides are true. Both things need to be said. I think that sometimes when we think of God's grace, we think of it almost exclusively in the context 
of His forgiveness and His restoration of us following some failure or sin in our life. That's when it's the easiest way to recognize the grace of God. And we appreciate God's grace in our life in that way. How He forgives us and restores us when we confess our sin and we repent. But it's not the only form that God's grace takes. It's not the only psalm that a child of God is forced to write in life. Grace also takes the form of giving us the power to live a godly life and to live a holy life and to live a life that is marked generally by obedience to the Lord. And I'll tell you, that's a wonderful song to sing to the Lord. And it's a song that needs to be sung. I'm thankful for both songs. I don't, I'm just in my head right now a little bit, so I hope it makes sense. I am thankful for every man and woman in the body of Christ who writes a psalm like David wrote in his last years of how God comes and he and most of us end up writing psalms like that in life. How gracious God was when David was guilty of two capital crimes and should have been killed. And yet God continued to allow him to be the king of Israel. Not only allowed him to do it, but did great things through him while doing that. And he writes of God's forgiveness and he writes of God's grace and his mercy. And it's a wonderful song. But I'm glad it's not the only song in the body of Christ. I'm glad that there are others that maybe don't fall in the way that David did. And they can write a song of God, pray of praise to God, of His grace demonstrated in their life by giving them a, the power to live a life of holiness and godliness. And I'll tell you what I do think. I think that every person who ends up singing the psalms that David wrote late in his life. And I don't begrudge him that at all. That's, those are, it's a wonderful psalm to sing, whether in this room or David. But I think David and anyone else in the history of Christianity would rise up and tell the younger person and tell the younger Christian, if you have a choice, you make that other psalm your song because that's a wonderful witness to the greatness of God. And it's the greater song to sing in life. I think it's the rarer song among us as God's people, but it's still powerful. They're both powerful. They're both important truths in our lives as Christians. Each one, there is a psalm a song to sing to God, whether we have drawn on His strength and lived a Christ-like life in general, or whether our life has been one marked by great and public failure. And that's the bigness of our God. That, that's God knowing us, how to encourage what is the highest in us, and to get us to, you know, aim high for that, aim for that, particular song in life, but then to know that we need this other song as well. 
He said, with the merciful, you will show yourself merciful. With the blameless, you'll show yourself blameless, as he describes how God will deal with both the humble and also with the proud. With the pure, you'll show yourself pure. With the devious, you'll show yourself shrewd. You will save the humble people, but your eyes are on the haughty that you may bring them down. For you are my lamp, O Lord. The Lord shall enlighten my darkness. That is his his ignorance or not knowing what's going on in his life at the moment or depression. For by you I can run against the troop. He's just praising the Lord for God's help here and his ability to not only have a victory in battle, but then chase down the retreating armies. By my God, I can leap over a wall in the in the chasing after those troops. As for God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord is proven. <laughs> I like that. It's proven. Thousands of years of human history have confirmed the truthfulness of God's word. He is a shield to all who trust in him. For who is God except the Lord? And here he's comparing uh, the God of the Bible to all of the idols and false gods of his enemies. For who is God except the Lord? And who is a rock except our God? God is my strength and power. He makes my way perfect. He makes my feet like the feet of deer, and he sets me on high places. Some of you have been to Israel, and a trip to Israel usually includes going to En Gedi, which is the wilderness area where David hid a good part of, uh, of the time when he was fleeing from Saul's murderous attempts to, to kill him. And they have an animal called an ibex there. It's a deer. It's a small deer. And it, it just looks like a moonscape out there. I mean, it's very, very beautiful. There's trees that grow. And in Getty, of course, there's a, there's a spring and everything that's there. So it's super beautiful. But the wilderness is, it's a, it's a desert wilderness out there. But it's a rocky. It's not sand. It's rocky. And you see these, these hills or these mountains. And they come right up to a point. I mean, it's not like these mounding kind of things. And you see these ibexes just walking right along the ridge. And literally, they don't have an extra inch of, of room to make a mistake in, in walking on that little path that runs along this, uh, you know, the, the side of the mountain. If they lose their step all the way down the cliff to their death, David looks and he thinks about how God has taken care of him and given him that kind of feat in battle. God has made him sure footed. He sets me on my high places. He teaches my hands to make war. People don't like that, but I like it. I won't have to like it when there's a new heaven and a new earth or the thousand-year reign of Christ right now in a fallen world. People need to know how, make, how to make war and fight righteous wars and then trust in God to protect them and give them victory. He teaches my hands to make war. Give him the skill to be a great warrior so that my arms can bend a bow of bronze. Anybody? Do we have any archers in the room tonight? Just a quick show of your hands. All right, gentlemen. Anybody else? You ever bent a, a bow of bronze? No, man. Remember I had a bow and arrow when I was at elementary school. 
was that a beginner one, you know? I was still, I was still, why they gave me a bow and a quiver of arrows is beyond me to this day. Dangerous as can, I won't even tell you. There's kids in the room. But I had that entry-level bow, and I was a part of an archery club and this kind of thing. And then they had this one where, I don't know, what do they begin at? Is it like 22 pounds or something or whatever? And it goes up to 45. Begins at 15. Okay, I see, there's 22 in my mind. All my stories are a little bit bigger than they actually were. What's the next step up? Was it a 45-pound? Is there a 45-pound bow? Huh? 60 and 80? Okay. So this other guy had a 60 or 80. I gave him credit for 45. So I'm kind of bigger on my bow, and I'm cutting him up. I remember grabbing that bow and trying to shoot an arrow with that step up. Oh, my, could barely pull the thing back. I can't imagine what a, a bow of bronze would be like to pull that back. And God gave him the strength, tremendous strength. And you have given me the shield for your salvation, your gentleness, has made me great. It's a beautiful line. You enlarged my path under me so that my feet did not slip. I have pursued my enemies and destroyed them. Neither did I turn back again till they were destroyed. David was all victory with him. He did no retreat in his, in his life and ministry. And I have destroyed them and wounded them so that they could not rise. They have fallen under my feet. For you have armed me with strength for the battle. You have subdued under me those who rose against me. Speaking of the enemies of Israel, those that sought their destruction. You have given me the necks of my enemies so that I destroyed those who hated me. They looked, but there was none to save, even to the Lord, but he did not answer them. Then I beat them as fine as the dust of the earth. I trod them like dirt in the streets and I spread them out. Poetic language for the completeness of the victories that God had given to him. Sometimes people don't like the military imagery in the Bible. They've never been in a war. You bring a war into the boundaries of this country. Or you get taken into a war in a foreign land. And we'll be excited about these kind of soldiers, this kind of strength and expertise and rejoice in having a victory that day. That's what makes war different from everything else in the world. The closest thing that we have to war, and it's a very far thing from war, is the NFL (laughs) or hockey. But those people live to play game six or game seven of the series. War, you live in you or you die. That's how it works. That's what you go out onto the battlefield. Those are the stakes. So he's not talking about just playing around in life. Time after time after time, he went out in life where his life was in jeopardy. And God protected his life because God had a call upon his life. And you have also delivered me from the strivings of my people. He said, oh, you think the enemies were tough. What about ruling the Jews? And you have kept me as the head of the nations. A people I have not known shall serve me. The foreigners submit to me. As soon as they hear, they obey me. The foreigners fade away. 
and become frightened from their hideouts. And then he gives this final burst of praise. The Lord lives. That's good to say. Not just on Resurrection Sunday. Our God is alive. David recognized it. He said, my life is a testimony. No other explanation for my life except that God lives. Do Do you have any other explanation for your life at this point except for the fact that God is alive? If you do, you're two weeks old in the Lord and you'll learn otherwise or you've fallen asleep in your Christian life. The Lord lives. Blessed be my rock. Let God be exalted, the rock of my salvation. I like that praise. Now let me go from preaching to meddling. Every one of us ought to be able to sit down and write a psalm. Doesn't have doesn't have to make it in the Bible because it won't. But every one of us has reason as a Christian. For writing a psalm like this or having verse 47 to having this kind of praise in our hearts. I sit in the back and I don't want to make anybody self-conscious during the worship part of the service. I don't like to sit back there necessarily, but I worship the Lord from there and all and it's just my portion I like being up here. When I come up for the final song and I'm up here, hear all of your voices at the back of my head. Yes! This is fabulous. The closer to the front, the better related to that. But to save my life, I cannot understand why some people come into a room like this and never open their mouths during the whole worship service. He deserves it. He deserves our praise. Doesn't matter whether I like the choruses or I don't like the choruses, or I like the hymns or I don't like the hymns. Always when the worship team will, they'll pick out songs that they, you know, want to teach us and lead us in the worship of the Lord. And always, my only thing is, is that they have content. Is that they actually say something about God or they allow us to say something to God. So any song they lead us in in worship, there is enough content in there to open up our mouth and to sing praise to him. Now, I know that I think some people, they don't sing because they're a little less than confident concerning their voice. Do you think anybody hears you with the sound up as loud as the sound technicians have it during the service? And actually, that's part of the idea. I, I, I tell them, you know, and by the way, if the sound is ever too loud, it's not anything I ever told them. You go ahead and take your complaints to them in the back. But I tell them, let's make it loud enough. That everybody can sing no matter what our voice is and not be worried that we're throwing six rows around us off key. And so it's loud enough to do that. But I want to do not in any kind of a way of, of being heavy handed or anything like that. I really want to with great gentleness. 
I, I just think it's very sad in a Christian life to miss that entire side of the Christian life of worshiping the Lord in song with this kind of enthusiasm in the light of all that we are and all that we have in Christ Jesus. We are more blessed than David ever dreamed of being. And so the importance of receiving these blessings, but then also offering him praise so that he receives it as an expression of our thanksgiving. It is God who avenges me and subdues the people under me. He delivers me from my enemies. You also lift me up above those who rise against me. You have delivered me from the violent man. Therefore, I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the Gentiles, among the nations, and sing praises to your name. He is the tower of salvation uh, to his king and shows mercy to his anointed, to David and his descendants forevermore. So again, David ends all of this, and there is that Uh, desire that he has in ending this psalm that everyone would recognize. I am not a self-made man. I am not more disciplined, stronger, smarter than anybody else. What I am, I am because of the grace of God. Chapter 23. Now, these are the last words of David. And so this really gets all of our attention because you think about David. Now he's been Uh, king over Israel for decades and decades, walked with God through so many things, thick and thin, up and down, hard and easy, everything. And so now here are his final prophetic words. These are not his. The idea isn't that these are his final words, period. That's going to happen in first Kings chapter two in a conversation that he has with his son, Solomon, who becomes the next king of Israel. But this is his last inspired utterance, his last Uh, prophetic utterance uh, from the Lord. So these are now the last words of David. And he communicates here, again, the same theme. uh, We can't hear it enough that that all that he was, all that he became was due to God's grace. Thus says David, the son of Jesse. So we look at it and we say, all right, there's David and his father was named Jesse. And so that is technically correct. That's not all that David was saying there. Jesse was a nobody in Bethlehem. David became the king of Israel. Out of a nobody family. In an obscure city. In Israel. God picked him out, picked him out as a boy to do the things that he had done. I hope we feel that way related to the Lord. He knows us so well. He knows the plans that he has for our lives. There's so much respect of persons in the world. If you don't have this degree, and I'm not putting education down, I want the most highly educated surgeon working on my body that I can find. But so often we look at people and we say, well, they've they don't have the education. They don't have the background. They don't have the this. They don't have the that. 
And God can look at a human life and say that person never had the opportunity that somebody else had. But there's greatness bound up in that boy. There's greatness bound up in that girl. And when he makes his choices for making someone a great influence for God in the world, he look, he, he's not bound by the way that the world looks at things. He looks straight through in a human life. He doesn't care where we came from. Doesn't care what our family was like, what side of the railroad tracks or the freeway we were born in, what neighborhood we live in, how much money we make, what title we have. He doesn't care about any of that. He just looks at the whole sea of humanity. He looks at your life and he says, I know what I've put in this man or woman and I know what I'm going to bring out of them for God's glory, whatever their background is. That means we should never, ever, related to the kingdom of God, I am not talking about spiritual Babylon or commercial Babylon, but related to the kingdom of God, we should never, ever put even the slightest limitation upon the influence that we might be for God on the basis of where we come from in life. God doesn't operate that way. He took, you wouldn't have known anything. None of us would have known anything about David, except God knew David as a boy in that village. And David is known around the world to this day, 3,000 years later, as one of the great figures in human history. So David says, listen, I'd have lived and died in Bethlehem as a son of Jesse and never, nobody would have known anything more about me. Except that God pulled me out of that place to then make me king. And he said, thus says the man raised on high, made the king. I'd have never become king unless God had done it. The anointed one of the God of Jacob, he describes himself as. He said, God not only made me the king of Israel, which would have been crazy enough in any story. But then he anointed me in that calling to be successful as king. And then he describes himself as the sweet psalmist of Israel. David's at the end of his life. And that's the title he takes to himself. He doesn't want to be known supremely as a giant killer. Or a great military general. Or as the great greatest king in the history of the nation of Israel. He will be surpassed by Christ himself. None of that means anything to him. The title he ascribes to himself is the sweet psalmist of Israel. He said, you want to take my life and put the whole thing in the balance and you want to know from an old man who's walked with God all the days of his life what really is important at the end of life? Is that I had the privilege of knowing God and then writing psalms that would point people to God and speak of His greatness and call on them to put their trust in that same God and then write their own songs concerning the Lord. And that's always what it comes down to at the end of life. Nobody who knows the Lord and knows Him deeply. It's not about titles. It's not about money. It's not a, it, all that stuff just goes by the wayside. And what people 
really rejoice in is that God used me to lead the children in worship in the children's church. Or I did the puppets for 30 years at such and such a church. Or I was an usher and I led people to their seats or whatever it might be. That's what we look back and we say, that's the difference that I made in the world. That's what I leave behind. The Spirit of the Lord spoke by me, and His word was on my tongue. The God of Israel said, the rock of Israel spoke to me. He who rules over men must be just, ruling in the fear of God. So David here, now you think about this. Some of us might wish that, boy, I wish I could go back 3,000 years in time and sit with that David as he's now elderly and just ask him, what is the key to greatness in life? What's the key to being a great influence for God in this world? God knew that that question might be in some of our minds. And so he tells us here, David is, he, is recorded by the Spirit, he who rules over men. You want to be an influence in this world? Two things. First of all, he needs to be just. And then number two, he needs to rule in the fear of man. He needs to do the right thing in every circumstance. Be just. God is just. Here's how a just life plays itself out. I find myself in a circumstance in life and I ask myself, what does the Bible tell me to do in this circumstance? And then I do it. And I have the confidence that that is the just thing to do. To draw my definitions of right and wrong and good and bad from this book. And that's how we live a just life and how we are a just person. And so there is that kind of weight given to the Word of God. Where you can't bribe me. You can't get me to compromise. This is a settled issue in my life. What does God say? And that's what I do. I wish we had a whole Senate full of men and women like this. And I don't mean it as a cheap shot. I wish we had a whole Congress, House of Representatives, that was filled with men and women like this. There would be no bribes. There would be no kickbacks. It would just be what is right and what is wrong and let's do the right thing. That's the kind of leader that every nation needs, David is saying here. Now, some of us look here and we say, well, I'm no leader. You better be a leader. The Bible says we are the head, we are not the tail. We don't follow in this world. We lead in this world as Christians. Who follows, that's God's business. But all of us lead. If we're a husband, if we're a wife, if we're a mother, if we're a father, if we live in a neighborhood, whatever it is, all of us are leaders as Christians. We don't follow here. We certainly don't follow other people morally and spiritually. We lead in this world in those areas that are most important. So for all of our lives, is the Bible the definition of right and wrong, and do I obey it in large situations and in small situations. That's what makes us just. 
And our influence in this world for God will be directly proportional to the degree in which we do. And when the Spirit of God puts in our life a concern over everything else in life, a concern to be influential for God, then that becomes important to us. I want to be influential for you, God. So it starts right here. Lord, help me in the big decisions and the little decisions of life to always be just, to be like you. And then he needs to rule and the fear of God. The fear of the Lord is required to be a just person because there will be tremendous pressure put on all of us to compromise God's standard of his word. And there's this thing called the fear of man in life. Sometimes we think, oh, and I wouldn't want to be in junior high ever again. God bless you in here from junior high. But you'll understand what I'm saying when you're 55. The world lasts that long. Yeah, I would never want to go back into that place and the peer pressure. Maybe none of you felt any of it when you were that age. You're probably oblivious to it. God dumped the whole load on me, apparently. Terminally self-conscious and, and thinking about what everybody and what and this and that and the thinking is so complicated. We think, oh, the poor teenagers. Yet we never outgrow it. We live in a culture that is just absolutely crazy concerned about what everybody else thinks about us. And it takes the fear of God to free us from the fear of man. A deep respect and reverence for God that is greater than what people think about us. Those are the two great things. Someone who is just and lives their life in the fear of God, they're going to make a great difference for God. And that's what's most important in life. And he shall be like the light. He describes now what this kind of a ruler will be to God's people. He'll be the, like the light of the morning when the sun rises. This is something that musicians know nothing about. A sunrise. They wake up for lunch. But a sunrise is a wonderful thing. It's not just beautiful. But it's a new day. The night is over. Here's a new day. I wonder what it's going to hold. And when a nation has men and women who are righteous leaders, then the citizens of that nation wake up and say, our best days are still in front of us. I wonder what today is going to hold. We have great hope for today, the potential of today. A morning without clouds. I think one of the great experiences of a childhood, not just limited to a childhood, but I hope everybody experienced a nice warm spring day where the wind is blowing and it's kind of cold if you stand up in it. But if you lay down in that big pile of tall grass on the hill and the sun just beats on you and it warms your bones in a way that no other heat warms your bones, provides warmth. That's what this kind of a leader brings. 
like the tender grass springing out of the earth by clear shining after the rain. This kind of a leader brings refreshment and it it, and, and he or she strengthens. And so the effect of the obedient, God-fearing person in society is to bring hope to that society, warmth to that society, refreshment to that society, life to that society. And that's our responsibility as Christians. I don't, say, I don't need you to come here and say, oh, boy, he put the, whole, the weight of the whole United States of America on me tonight. I'm not doing that. But we look and say, how can we make a difference in the current mess that things are in? Things are in the mess that they're in for a lot of reasons. But one of the reasons is that a smaller and smaller number of people are living this kind of life within the nation. Well, I can't make that decision for you. You can't make that decision for me or for your neighbor or anybody else. All we can do is decide that, Lord, we want to live this kind of life. And then what you do with it in this nation, that's up to you. And it's important that we do that. And although my house is not so with God, David says here now at the end of his life, here's the different psalm. He said, I wasn't always just. I didn't always operate in the fear of God. As we've seen and studying his life. Praise the Lord for the next word, yet. And then the word that follows, he, referring to God. I failed, yet he has made with me an everlasting covenant, ordered in all things and secure, for this is my salvation and all my desire. Will he not make it increase? David thinks to himself, I have failed mightily in my life, and yet God is faithful to me, and specifically to a covenant that God had made to David. And what was the covenant God had made to David? That he would bring the Messiah into the world through David's bloodline. David comes to the end of his life, and he's conscious of where he's failed, but he's even more conscious of how gracious God has been to him and that God is faithful even when we are faithless and that God determined even though he was faithful, he did even though he was uh, less than faithful, that God was going to keep his promise to bring the Messiah into the world through David's bloodline, which again meant everything to David. Nothing else meant anything to David in comparison to that. But the sons of rebellion, they, they shall... All be as thorns thrust away. Talking now about the end of the rebellious. Because they cannot be taken with hands. So they have the thorns and the thorn bushes in Israel and really anywhere you want to go in the world. You just, they've just got different names. And so to try and pull them out of the ground and to get the land straight. And, you know, they didn't have, maybe have leather gloves the way that we do and all. And, and to try and deal with these weeds or these thorns was just to do damage to the person that was trying to get rid of them. And, and, uh, and because that's all these kind of people can do. And so, uh, and so they couldn't be taken with hands. But the man who touches them must be armed with iron, the shaft of a spear. And they shall be, speaking of these rebellious, they shall be burned with fire in their place. So you've got the end of the righteous ruler, the righteous kind of person. 
And then the end of the rebellious, as David writes here. They're just going to be stacked in a pile, so to speak, like the weeds were, the thorn bushes. And what can you do with a thorn bush? Can't make furniture out of it. Can't eat it. It's only good for burning. And that they would one day be burned and be destroyed. Again, we'll close here tonight so some of you can relax. Some of you are ready to order in some pizzas. But David, again, sometimes we look, and, and it was my case, I think, you know, you've got the family unit that's just in a free fall in the United States of America. How many children are being raised? Number one, by their biological father. And I'm not putting a guilt trip on you if, if there's step-parents in here and that kind of a thing. But how many children are being raised by a father who really, really cares about that child? And is willing to invest the time to speak into their life and to talk to them about how to live life and how to live life with a long perspective in life. Not just today or the next video game that comes out or the next this or that, but to really sit down and talk about life in a way, by the way, that we're going to need. Everyone's going to need to talk to children about sooner or later because this world has changed in the last three years. The world will never be what it once was. Whatever that is, good or bad, it has changed. It's going to be the Wild West in some ways. Not just for a short period of time, but for a long period of time. We'll talk maybe more about that next, next week. Maybe not. Just so some of you say, okay, I'm not coming. <laughs> this guy gets going on that stuff and I can't even take it. It's interesting, I've had more people catch me talking to me in the last month who have said, I can't even listen to talk radio anymore. We're talking about hardcore people, hardcore news people. I mean, they listen to Rush and then they listen to Hannity and then they can't wait till Savage comes on. And then as soon as he's off, they've got Rusty Humphreys on. I don't know how I know all those names. But, but, I mean, things have gotten into a place, not for everybody, because some people are called to fight this battle. But where more and more people are saying, man, I can't, this thing, I never thought it would outstrip my interest and my ability to process it, and yet it is. And some of us come from a background, this is where I started, where we didn't really have a good male influence in our life, a good father. In our life. When you come from that kind of a background, you crave input. You crave an older man who knows God and loves God and knows you and loves you to speak into your life. And that's what David does in these seven verses. And basically he says to us, I've seen what happens to the righteous and the just in this world. And it's a good thing. 
And it's a good life. It's not without its problems, but it's the best life you can live this side of heaven. And I have seen the end of the wicked and the rebellious and the ungodly. And I know and have seen enough to know that that's not a path anyone wants to find themselves on. There's no future in it. And so the value of what he's saying here is an older man to us in this final prophetic word of his. And we'll stop here in verse 7 and pick it up in verse 8 next week. The worship team would come forward.